0: Chapter Sixty eight of Barnaby Rudge, A Tale of the Riots of Eighty. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recorded by Mill Nicholson. Barnaby Rudge, A Tale of the Riots of Eighty, by Charles Dickens. Chapter Sixty eight. While Newgate was burning on the previous night, Barnaby and his father, having been passed among the crowd from hand to hand, stood in Smithfield, on the outskirts of the mob, gazing at the flames like men who had been suddenly roused from sleep. Some moments elapsed before they could distinctly remember where they were, or how they got there, or recollected that while they were standing idle and listless spectators of the fire, they had tools in their hands which had been hurriedly given them, that they might free themselves from their fetters. Barnaby, heavily ironed as he was, if he had obeyed his first impulse, or if he had been alone, would have made his way back to the side of Hugh, who, to his clouded intellect, now shone forth with the new lustre of being his preserver and truest friend. But his father's terror of remaining in the streets communicated itself to him when he comprehended the full extent of his fears, and impressed him with the same eagerness to fly to a place of safety. In a corner of the market, among the pens for cattle, Barnaby knelt down, and pausing every now and then to pass his hand over his father's face, or look up to him with a smile, knocked off his irons. When he had seen him spring a free man to his feet, and had given vent to the transport of delight which the sight awakened, he went to work upon his own, which soon fell rattling down upon the ground, and left his limbs unfettered. Gliding away together when this task was accomplished, and passing several groups of men each gathered round a stooping figure to hide him from those who passed but unable to repress the clanking sound of hammers which told that they too were busy at the same work the two fugitives made towards clerkenwell and passing thence to islington as the nearest point of egress were quickly in the fields after wandering about for a long time they found in a pasture near finchley a poor shed with walls of mud and roof of grass and brambles, built for some cowherd, but now deserted. Here they lay down for the rest of the night. They wandered to and fro when it was day, and once Barnaby went off alone to a cluster of little cottages two or three miles away to purchase some bread and milk. But finding no better shelter, they returned to the same place, and lay down again to wait for night. Heaven alone can tell, with what vague hopes of duty and affection, with what strange promptings of nature intelligible to him as to a man of radiant mind and most enlarged capacity with what dim memories of children he had played with when a child himself who had prattled of their fathers and of loving them and being loved with how many half-remembered dreamy associations of his mother's grief and tears and widowhood he watched and tended this man but that a vague and shadowy crowd of such ideas came slowly on him "'that they taught him to be sorry when he looked upon his haggard face, "'that they overflowed his eyes when he stooped to kiss him, "'that they kept him waking in a tearful gladness, "'shading him from the sun, fanning him with leaves, "'soothing him when he started in his sleep. "'Ah, what a troubled sleep it was, "'and wondering when she would come to join them and be happy, is the truth. "'He sat beside him all that day, "'listening for her footsteps in every breath of air, looking for her shadow on the gently waving grass, twining the hedge-flowers for her pleasure when she came, and his when he awoke, and stooping down from time to time to listen to his mutterings, and wonder why he was so restless in that quiet place. The sun went down, and night came on, and he was still quite tranquil. Busied with these thoughts, as if there were no other people in the world, and the dull cloud of smoke hanging on the immense city in the distance, hid no vices, no crimes, no life or death, or cause of disquiet, nothing but clear air. But the hour had now come when he must go alone to find out the blind man, a task that filled him with delight, and bring him to that place, taking especial care that he was not watched or followed on his way back. He listened to the directions he must observe, repeated them again and again, and after twice or thrice returning to surprise his father with a light-hearted laugh, went forth, at last, upon his errand, leaving Grip, whom he had carried from the jail in his arms, to his care. Fleet of foot, and anxious to return, he sped swiftly on towards the city, but could not reach it before the fires began, and made the night angry with their dismal lustre. When he entered the town, it might be that he was changed by going there without his late companions, and on no violent errand, or by the beautiful solitude in which he had passed the day, or by the thoughts that had come upon him. But it seemed peopled by a legion of devils. This flight and pursuit, this cruel burning and destroying, these dreadful cries and stunning noises, were they the good lord's noble cause? Though almost stupefied by the bewildering scene, still he found the blind man's house. It was shut up and tenantless. He waited for a long while, but no one came. At last he withdrew, and as he knew by this time that the soldiers were firing, and many people must have been killed, he went down into Hoban, where he heard the great crowd was, to try if he could find Hugh, and persuade him to avoid the danger, and return with him. If he had been stunned and shocked before, his horror was increased a thousandfold when he got into this vortex of the riot— and not being an actor in the terrible spectacle had it all before his eyes but there in the midst towering above them all close before the house they were attacking now was hugh on horseback calling to the rest sickened by the sight surrounding him on every side and by the heat and roar and crash he forced his way among the crowd where many recognised him and with shouts pressed back to let him pass and in time was nearly up with hugh who was savagely threatening someone, but whom or what he said he could not, in the great confusion, understand. At that moment the crowd forced their way into the house, and Hugh, it was impossible to see by what means in such a concourse, fell headlong down. Barnaby was beside him when he staggered to his feet. It was well he made him hear his voice, or Hugh, with his uplifted axe, would have cleft his skull in twain. "'Barnaby! You!' "'Whose hand was that that struck me down?' "'Not mine.' "'Whose? I say, whose?' "'He cried, reeling back and looking wildly round. "'What are you doing? Where is he? Show me!' "'You are hurt,' said Barnaby, as indeed he was, in the head, both by the blow he had received and by his horse's hoof. "'Come away with me!' "'As he spoke, he took the horse's bridle in his hand, "'turned him, and dragged Hugh several paces. "'This brought them out of the crowd, "'which was pouring from the street "'into the vintners' cellars. "'Where's—where's Dennis?' "'said Hugh, coming to a stop, "'and checking Barnaby with his strong arm. "'Where has he been all day? "'What did he mean by leaving me "'as he did in the jail last night? "'Tell me, you, do you hear?' "'With a flourish of his dangerous weapon, "'he fell down upon the ground like a log.' After a minute, though already frantic with drinking and with the wound in his head, he crawled to a stream of burning spirit which was pouring down the kennel, and began to drink at it, as if it were a brook of water. Barnaby drew him away, and forced him to rise. Though he could neither stand nor walk, he involuntarily staggered to his horse, climbed upon his back, and clung there. After vainly attempting to divest the animal of his clanking trappings, Barnaby sprung up behind him. Snatched the bridle, turned into Leather Lane, which was close at hand, and urged the frightened horse into a heavy trot. He looked back once before he left the street, and looked upon a sight not easily to be erased, even from his remembrance, so long as he had life. The vintner's house, with a half a dozen others near at hand, was one great glowing blaze. All night, no one had essayed to quench the flames or stop their progress. But now a body of soldiers were actively engaged in pulling down two old wooden houses, which were every moment in danger of taking fire, and which could scarcely fail, if they were left to burn, to extend the conflagration immensely. The tumbling down of nodding walls and heavy blocks of wood, the hooting and the execrations of the crowd, the distant firing of other military detachments, the distracted looks and cries of those whose habitations were in danger the hurrying to and fro of frightened people with their goods the reflections in every quarter of the sky of deep red soaring flames as though the last day had come and the whole universe were burning the dust and smoke and drift of fiery particles scorching and kindling all it fell upon the hot unwholesome vapour the blight on everything the stars and moon and very sky obliterated made up such a sum of dreariness and ruin that it seemed as if the face of heaven were blotted out, and night, and its rest and quiet and softened light, never could look upon the earth again. But there was a worse spectacle than this, worse by far than fire and smoke, or even the rabble's unappeasable and maniac rage. The gutters of the street, and every crack and fissure in the stones, ran with scorching spirit, which, being dammed up by busy hands, overflowed the road and pavement, and formed a great pool, into which the people dropped down dead by dozens. They lay in heaps all round this fearful pond, husbands and wives, fathers and sons, mothers and daughters, women with children in their arms, and babies at their breasts, and drank until they died. While some stooped with their lips to the brink, and never raised their heads again, Others sprang up from the fiery draught, and danced, half in a mad triumph and half in the agony of suffocation, until they fell, and steeped their corpses in the liquor that had killed them. Nor was even this the worst or most appalling kind of death that happened on this fatal night. From the burning cellars, where they drank out of hats, pails, buckets, tubs, and shoes, some men were drawn, alive, but all alight from head to foot, who, in their unendurable anguish and suffering, making for anything that had the look of water, rolled, hissing, in this hideous lake, and splashed up liquid fire, which lapped in all it met with as it ran along the surface, and neither spared the living nor the dead. On this last night of the great riots—for the last night it was—the wretched victims of a senseless outcry became themselves the dust and ashes of the flames they had kindled— and strewed the public streets of London. With all he saw in this last glance, fixed indelibly upon his mind, Barnaby hurried from the city which enclosed such horrors, and holding down his head, that he might not even see the glare of the fires upon the quiet landscape, was soon in the still country roads. He stopped at about half a mile from the shed where his father lay, and with some difficulty, making Hugh sensible that he must dismount, sunk the horse's furniture in a pool of stagnant water, and turned the animal loose. That done, he supported his companion as well as he could, and led him slowly forward. End of chapter 68